This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, this is Dayton Ward, author of a whole bunch of Star Trek novels, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM. to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise podcast. I'm your host, but I'm not Floyd, I'm Brandon. Floyd is away today, he got called on an emergency Section 31 mission. But uh, have no fear, we've got a fun interview today. We've got Mike Sussman joining us, who is a writer and an executive story editor and a producer on Star Trek Enterprise, and he worked on Star Trek Voyager as well. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great, Brandon. Thanks for uh, having me on the on the pod. Yeah, we're very we're very thrilled to have you on. You've written some really good stuff. You've done a lot of work with uh, Phyllis Strong, who we had on a couple of months ago, and so we got we got her side of all the juicy stories. So, are you ready to to go to bat and defend yourself? Oh yeah, I wouldn't believe anything Phyllis told you. Uh, no, Phyllis is. Phyllis is wonderful, and we, we had a, a great time for uh, many years uh, working on Star Trek. Going back as a Star Trek fan, do you remember the first episode of Star Trek you ever watched? Wow. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't remember which uh, episode. Honestly, I can't even tell you which series it was. And, and again, this you know will totally you know date me. But, I, I mean, I have recollections of watching... Uh, the animated series and the original series, kind of discovering them both around the same time, which I guess would have been, you probably know this, I, I don't know, maybe 73, is that when the animated series started? Yeah. Somewhere in that area? So, you know, I was like five or six, and uh, I remember being really, really young and, and discovering this, you know, mind-blowing television show that existed you know, as a cartoon on Saturdays and was, was running every day of the week on the local, you know, in, in local syndication uh, in, well, I guess at the time I was, I was probably living in Philadelphia. And I was, I was watching Star Trek, you know, six days a week as a, a five-year-old and thinking this was the coolest thing ever. And they were just somehow continually trying out new episodes and uh, how amazing is it to live in a universe where you get six new episodes of Star Trek every week. Um, of course, ultimately, I you know discovered the concept of the rerun, and uh, and uh, you know became a little more aware. Of, uh, you know, as a still a kid, uh, reality television production, and then at Star Trek had actually gone off the air with the longer uh, you know being produced. Um, so uh, 
yeah, I, I, honestly, I can't remember. But, you know, I, I do recall episodes that I would watch, uh, you know. Well, I mean, who am I kidding? I mean, even if And the Children, Shalid came on, I would, you know, sit down for the full hour and watch that commercials and all <laughs> long before the days of, you know, DVRs or VCRs even. Um, but, I, you know, certainly had my favorites, uh, you know, Balance of Terror, Doomsday Machine, probably, you know, any original series fans, uh, you know, top 10 list would, would uh, correlate uh, pretty closely with, with mine. Um, those are the episodes, of course, that still stand out in my memory, having, having seen them so many times later, you know, ultimately on, you know, VHS cassette tape. Again, a concept your listeners may or may not be familiar with. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't recall which episode it, it would have been. It was, I, was, I was too young, I think, to uh, recall. I remember the first original episode that I sat down and watched the whole way through um, was Shore Leaf. That was the first one that I saw. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah, that must have been a mind uh, blower. Uh, how old were you at, at, at the time? I was in my teens at the time. I, I discovered Star Trek when I was about 12 or 13. Now, I remember my mom had sat us down to watch Encounter at Farpoint when it aired, and I would have been you know, five years old when that happened. And I remember asking her when it was airing, like, is that supposed to be Spock? Is that supposed to be Kirk? So somehow at that time I had some kind of knowledge of the characters of it. But uh, throughout the years I'd caught a few episodes here and there. I remember I saw on during reruns one summer when I was out in British Columbia visiting my dad, I saw a trailer for Identity Crisis, which is a season four episodes of The Next Generation where Geordi turns into that invisible alien thing. And oh, sure. for some reason, I just, I'm like, I got to watch this episode. This looks so cool. And it was still another year or two before I really caught the Star Trek bug. But I remember seeing that trailer for Identity Crisis and like, I got to watch this show. Huh. No, I mean, I, I caught it pretty, pretty early. There was just nothing like it on television, you know, certainly at the time. And uh, certainly not a lot of genre stuff. And uh, I, I gravitated toward it right away. <laughs> So uh, it was, uh, you know, a, a formative uh, <laughs> influence, I think, on, on my youth and, and my adulthood. Right on. Well, we're going to actually open up some of these questions here. Before we jump into your Star Trek work here, I do have uh, a couple of your shows that I do want to talk about. And we're going to actually open up with a listener question here. So Dan Lackey says, for the episode 100 Years of 12 Monkeys, he says, I was wondering about the episode's development. Was it fun to write the 1940s material? And did you include any in-jokes when you wrote the episode? Wow, 12 Monkeys. Uh, yeah, that was a show I worked on a, a couple of years ago with my uh, friend, uh, Terry Metallis, who uh, was, got his start on uh, Star Trek Enterprise and had written a, a couple of episodes. He, he had been uh, Bram Braga's assistant and uh, was just, you know, a baby writer, an aspiring writer when uh, we first worked together. And now he's got his own TV show with 12 Monkeys, which I think was recently renewed for another season. So. Uh, no, that, that episode was a lot of fun. I, I came in uh, season two, and that episode, 100 Years, was a little bit of a, not quite a reboot for the series, but setting the series off in a new direction. Um, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, at that point in time, the show, in terms of the time travel, had jumped back and forth between like the present day and you know, 20 some years in the future after, after the, uh, the plague had wiped out humanity. And one of the, uh, you know, the goals for the new season was to open up the time travel aspect and visit other eras. 
And, you know, one of the, the first eras that, that came up was, uh, you know, the 40s, World War II, the, 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 you know, the pre-war hysteria. And um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun to, to write that episode. And I, I, I do remember, you know, there's a, there's a teaser that just uh, starts in, in, the, in the 40s. And when uh, you know, two of the, uh, basically these assassins from the future show up and uh, murder this military hero and his wife and then take their place in order to, you know, do their, uh, you know, carry out their evil plan and, uh, and, and take the place of, of, of these two people at a, at a gala. And uh, anyway, it was, it was a whole lot of fun showing their arrival, figuring out how they would get there what their, you know, time travel plot was um, and coming up with a really interesting way for uh, Cassie. She's, she's actually the, the, this was, I think the, the first time, well, she had time traveled before, but she, she was traveling back uh, before uh, Cole was uh, and was going to arrive in the forties before he did. So uh, we, I remember brainstorming with everyone trying to come up with a cool entrance for her into the 1940s and what we ended up doing was have her basically beam or uh, beam <laughs> wrong franchise excuse me uh you know she materializes uh on broadway uh like on a on a saturday night uh in the middle of you know all these well-dressed theater goers who are going to a show when suddenly an air raid siren sounds and spotlights shine on the, the sky looking for planes and everybody evacuates and she's sort of left alone in the middle of Broadway as the, uh, the air sirens whale, which of course, you know, we didn't have, we, we weren't shooting, uh, you know, on Broadway in New York city at all, but uh, the production team I thought did like an amazing job bringing that theater to life and dressing it and uh, you know, bringing everyone in and, and period costumes and add in the, the special effects component. It was, it was a great, I, I thought, you know, introduction for that era. And we spent a couple episodes in, in the forties and I, I think we've, well, we certainly went back to the fifties that season and they may have come back since I've, I've, I've sort of lost track of the show. <laughs> I've been busy with some other things, but um, it, it was fun to do that big reset and, uh, and, and sort of launched the show in, into this new era. And, um, you yeah, know, I, I really enjoy it. You know, TV has changed so drastically over the last 20 years from what it used to be, you know, and I don't know, a lot of people credit Star Trek with that. I personally would credit like the Sopranos and like early HBO shows with the, with the transition of television and how it's kind of turned into what it is now with these season long arcs that are basically a book in a series, right? So you got a, you know, like Sopranos was basically a six book television show, right? So, you know, it's, it's changed and the flexibility and the creativity that television provides people with nowadays, I think exceeds what's on the big screen for in many, many ways. Sure. I mean, it certainly gives you a canvas where you can, you know, spend a lot more time and with, with a, with a character or a group of characters and, and get to know them in a way that uh, you just can't in a, in a two hour movie where, uh, you know, I, you know, I love a big, exciting, you know, comic book film, like, you know, civil war as much as the next person, but uh, there's only a certain amount of time you can, you can devote to, you know, getting to know them as people. And 
you know, I think in television in many ways, because of shows like Sopranos and Breaking Bad, it's, it's almost become a brand new art form. And, uh, again, no one, you know, uh, you, you have to, you know, <laughs> it, it might take a long time to find someone who's like a bigger fan of Star Trek than me, like just growing up as a kid. But, you know, I, I think even the later series, the sequel series, uh, as terrific as they were, were very much kind of a throwback to the format uh, of, of the original show. Uh, and granted, Deep Space Nine and even Enterprise and, and some of the other series did experiment with, uh, you know, season-long arcs. But I think there was still, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, a directive to keep things as, as wrapped up as, as tightly as you could in two hours. I do remember working as a freelancer, working on Star Trek Voyager, and there was an episode that I had uh, written, or I'd written a story for, I believe uh, it was Mel, along with Brad Dourif as, as a serial killer, and there was, a, there, was a, there was a serialized thread that season that I remember the writers were experimenting with, and again, I was not even on the staff of the show, I was just a freelancer, I was a former intern who had told them some stories, and uh, there was an ongoing storyline about Paris, uh, the character of Tom Paris, and how he appeared to be betraying the crew that they were, and they were trying to set up this this thread. And ultimately, it was right, right. going to be a bit of a red herring, and they were going to surprise everybody. But they were setting up Tom Paris as basically a traitor, and uh, there was a lot of concern. I remember, as, again, I'm a freelance writer sitting in the room, and there, and the writers are you know incorporating the serialized element into the show there's a lot of concern that people watching these episodes out of order were going to be somewhat confused that these you know that these i think there are only like two scenes uh related to that arc uh we're just going to confuse people and honestly i i think it, it kind of did i i think those those two scenes kind of they, they really jumped out and didn't really fit uh you know with that episode but you know, I think that, you know, one of the challenges, you know, a, you know, any new Star Trek series is going to face is that, is that balance of serialization and, uh, you know, standalone. Um, uh, you, obviously, you can, you can just do a 10 episode or 13 or 15 episode Star Trek movie that is, you know, 15 hours long. Uh, but, you know, the, the, again, the, you know, the Star Trek that I wrote, that I remember, that the audience remembers, uh, often had a, you know, was wrapped up in a bow at, at, at the end of, you know, an hour. And I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a great creative challenge to find out, you know, does that still work in this uh, era of peak television? I, uh, I imagine it doesn't. I imagine Star Trek, like anything else, is going to have to, you know, continue to evolve. You know, yeah, sure. But I think your point is absolutely right. I think, you know, Star Trek is really, you know, very much a creature of the, of the 60s. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, was, that, that kind of, you know, was one of the factors uh, with, with Enterprise and that Enterprise was trying to evolve into this new era. I mean, we were concurrent with, you know, some of these other shows and yet uh, the, the, the format of the show uh, was a very familiar, you know, the formula that had worked very successfully for a long time. Um, but audiences, I think, were changing, and tastes were changing. And, uh, you know, I think television is still trying to, you know, get caught up and, you know, uh, and the people creating television are, are still trying to figure out, you know, what works 
Mm-hmm. And how do you take something like Star Trek, which uh, is, is known for, you know, being one type of format, and how do you, you know, reinvent it for the new era? It was certainly reinvented, you know, brilliantly by, you know, Gene Roddenberry and Rick Berman, and, and you know, ultimately, you know, Brian Pillar came in in the late 80s and early 90s. But we're in a sort of similar, I think, you know, new era now where, where television has changed even more than it changed, say, between the, the 60s and the, and the 80s. Now, you had mentioned the episode Mel. That was the first episode that you'd worked on for Star Trek Voyager. Now, your credit on that was Story By, right? Yeah, that was, uh, I had I had done in, um, I was an intern with the uh, writing staff of Voyager for, I believe it was six weeks. And on the last day of my internship, I pitched a story to uh, Michael Piller, who, uh, you know, was the co-creator of Voyager and uh, a showrunner at the time. And I pitched him a story about a, a serial killer that was, uh, you know, loose on the ship. And um, I remember very distinctly him, you know, kind of taking a moment and staring at the ceiling. And I was so sure this was the end of my involvement with Star Trek. It was the last day of my internship and clearly I had blown it. But he then looked down and he said, he looked at me and he said, I've never heard a story like that before. And uh, the following Monday, this was a Friday, the following Monday, I, I came back to the offices as a freelance, but working writer uh, with, a, with, a, with a pitch that had sold to Star Trek. So it was, uh, it was uh, a very exciting time for me. Michael ended up uh, writing I got story credit for it. Michael ended up uh, doing a lot of revisions to that story and he did the teleplay. Um, ultimately, I think at the time, and again, this is, you know, this is back in the era of, you know, Star Trek series making 26 episodes a season. Mm-hmm. They were really under the gun at that particular moment and needed a script very quickly and needed a cheap one. And it made more sense for Michael to simply take my idea and, and just write it rather than give it to a newcomer like me who would never, uh, written a, a professional script before, but it was my first sale and it opened the door for me uh, on Voyager and um, eventually sold you know, some other episodes. And uh, but it was uh, it was uh, a great beginning, and I, I'm you know really happy that I got a chance to work with Michael towards the end of his his involvement with uh, Star Trek. It uh, you know meant a meant a great deal to me having been a fan of his uh, work on the show for so long. Mm-hmm. Now, like that episode in itself is an extremely fascinating one because every time I watch it, it surprises me because, you know, you get a common trope in television of, you know, the murder mystery and you solves the case by the end of the episode. But in this one, he solves the case by the end of the first act and it turns into this psychological drama and this battle of the wills between logic and violence. And it's it's a really, really fascinating script. And so how much of that was your original idea, and how much of that came from Michael Piller? Well, Michael had pitched out, again, I was, I was uh, an, an intern, and one of my responsibilities as the intern was to, uh, you know, sit in on all the, the, the writers' meetings and take notes and uh, write you know, the showrunner, whether it was Michael or, or Jerry Taylor was there, would pitch out the, you know, the beats and the scenes for the episode. And I, as the intern, would write them in a marker on the dry erase board. And so I was there for a lot of meetings with uh, the writing staff. And 
uh, what I remember very early on hearing is that, you know, often uh, you'll have a showrunner say to his or her writing staff, well, I'd like to do an episode about X. I don't know what X is or what, you know, maybe X is just a theme or I want to do a story where, uh, you know, Captain Janeway, you know, falls in love. You know, does anybody have any ideas for that kind of an episode? Well, what Michael had pitched uh, was he wanted to do a story. In really, all what he had was a theme, and he had, he had he wanted to do a, an episode about Tuvok and uh, senseless violence. And he had wanted to do this for several months. And I think some of the other writers perhaps had, had given him some pitches for ideas that didn't quite work for Michael, but. He was. He really wanted to explore that theme, the and uh, you know the notion of this uh, you know very logical security officer, this Vulcan who you know we've gotten another species through you know all these different series. How they would confront something like senseless violence, and so I was racking my brain for weeks cause, because I felt like if I'd come up, I could come up with an idea uh, that had that theme. Uh, Michael might buy it, and uh, I could kick off my writing career. Uh, I had several really awful takes on it. I think at one point I had come up with something about, you know, the Voyager, Voyager running into, uh, you know, gangs in space, or, you know, I, 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 I was really coming up with things that were that were too on the nose, and um, and then I remember. I, I just kind of gave up on it. And uh, at one point I was, I, think I was falling asleep and my mind was wandering in that, in that sort of in-between state between being asleep and being awake. And uh, it, it, I just had this image of Tuvok mind melding with this sort of like a reptilian uh, killer and being affected and influenced because of the, sort of the incompatibilities of the, of the reptilian brain and the Vulcan brain. And I didn't know what that was. Uh, I, 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 I didn't know what it meant, but I remember waking up from this half asleep state and writing it down on a, on a, on a notepad. And, uh, and then I took my nap and <laughs> later finding it, uh, I, I, I thought that was like the, the, a very cool genesis for this kind of story. So I wrote it up as, as a pitch and pitched it to Michael and, and he ran with it. So that was the genesis of, of Mel. And they ended up bringing back that character, I think, for, for um, I, I think for the, the season ender. That's uh, right. The Brad Dourif killer character. And I think he saved, didn't he and the doctor save the ship when the Kazon took it over? Yes, he did. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, no, that was, it, it was, it was great fun to, to see that come to life. I, I wish it was a script I, I could have had more of a, a hand in, but again, this is the, uh, this is what often happens in television. You were just under the gun and you need a script, uh, you know, ready for production, ready to shoot. Um, and clearly Michael knew it once he'd heard the idea and it clicked with this theme that he wanted to explore, he was the perfect person, uh, clearly to, to, to write it. It would have taken me weeks and weeks and weeks, I'm sure to get it even anywhere in the ballpark. Uh, but they were, uh, you know, Michael and Jerry and everybody was, uh, certainly, you know, very lovely to me and invited me back many, many more times to, to pitch future stories, which I did, some of which they, they bought. Um, so it, it ended up uh, working out very nicely. I'm, I'm very proud of that. So. 
So how did you meet Phyllis Strong, and how did you begin writing so much with her? Oh, well, Phyllis and I were friends from, like, the mid-'90s. In fact, we had worked on a show very briefly. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a show that never actually uh, aired in the United States uh, based on uh, some old short stories of Jack London. And uh, we were put together with this, uh, it was a very, very small writing staff. We were, they were trying to figure out the show. And, and Phyllis and I were, were thrown together, uh, if I remember, in a conference room because they didn't have enough offices for everybody. And so uh, we, we, even though we had been hired uh, individually as story editors uh, on the show, uh, because we were sharing this, you know, big conference room office, people would just kind of come in. The producer would come in uh, with, uh, you know, ideas or problems to solve, and we would just kind of work on them together. So we kind of became like this de facto writing team. And then years later, um, when uh, Voyager was was looking for some new writers, I, I think they were, you know, you know, very understandably looking for more diversity in the writing staff, and I recommended uh, Phyllis and uh, uh, who they had not uh, worked with before. Uh, but then uh, the idea came up very quickly that, well, you know, could, would Phyllis and I be interested in working together on this? And, uh, you know, we both jumped at the chance. So, and since we'd already functioned uh, as a writing team on that previous uh, job, we were certainly comfortable working together and, and we were both crazy fans of, of the whole franchise. So uh, it, uh, it, it uh, worked out terrifically. And we wrote together on Star Trek for, uh, for three years before branching off and, and running with it uh, as individual writers. Mm -hmm. Now, you guys uh, together wrote my personal favorite episode of Enterprise, which is Future Tense. Uh, I really love that episode a lot. Yeah, so I was wondering, I asked Phyllis this, and she couldn't recall, but I'm wondering if you happen to know, did you write a backstory for this, this person that they found in the ship. Oh, <laughs> I I knew who I wanted. Well, yes, there was there was there was a version of the story where well, you remember the character of Crewman Daniels. Yep. Right, who is this, that time traveler from the the thirty first century? I want to say anyway. Um, my my pitch, uh, I think, to Branham was that. At the end of the episode, Crewman Daniels would sort of, you know, materialize and time travel to, you know, time travel to the bridge of, of you know, Archer's ship and say, oh, that, you know, after, you know, the big battle with the Folians, it's all very exciting. Uh, and if you remember, the, you know, uh, trip is building a, you know, a sort of time communicator, uh, sending out a distress call to who knows where to come and get the ship before the Folians make off with it. So, in the current script, that ship just sort of disappears. But my uh, version of the story, Crewman Daniels was going to show up and take the ship back. And Archer's going to ask him, who, by the way, whose body is that? And he's going to say, well, actually, it's mine. Wow. <laughs> and then he disappears. And, and we get no more answers. Um, and for I, I, I don't know why that was rejected. Maybe it's a, a dumb idea. But um, it, it, I, I think that the decision was made at a, at a higher level to keep it more mysterious. And, uh, and, you know, I, I think that worked, uh, worked, worked as well, but that's who I thought it, it might be. I thought it was either Daniels or another sort of Daniels like time traveler, but there was something I thought fun about a, a time traveler, you know, showing up to pick up his own dead body. 
that, that would have been a, a, a cool thing to reveal, but, um, but I guess we'll never know. I like that. That's pretty cool. I, I've said numerous times on the show, like why I love that episode so much and why it's my favorite. And it's because there's so many things in it. It's to me, it's the first perfect prequel episode of the series because there's so many elements in it that as soon as you see them or hear them, it instantly brings up memories of other Star Trek sh- shows. Like when they, when Archer asks the episode, could this be Zephram Cochran? Bang, immediately, metamorphosis is in my mind. The Tholians come on the stream. Bang, instantly, the Tholian web is in my mind. You know, like, there's just, there's so many elements in it that immediately make you think of the original Star Trek series. And I think that's one of the great things about this episode. Well, thanks. I, you know, I appreciate that. I mean, the, the original pitch, which I, I think in many ways is unworkable, uh, was even more of a, of a throwback. And, if, you know, anyone has checked this out on, on, on the memory alpha wiki, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more or less public knowledge. But the, the, the ship from the future that originally showed up in my first pitch was the, uh, you know, was the Starship Defiant from Solid Web. And that there were going to be, you know, forces, you know, vying to get the ship and, and, and take it back to, you know, whatever time period it's from. Uh, and, you know, that pitch was, was deemed, you know, problematic. One, we'd have to, you know, build the defiance, which nobody was prepared to do. Plus, it also really would kind of screw up the timeline in a way. If, if Archer were to, and his crew were to, were to, were to see a Federation starship, it would, it would really open a can of worms. So... Uh, obviously, I saved that idea and later <laughs> ended up doing a, a, a different version of it. But that was the that was the original uh, take on that notion. Okay, that's interesting that you've you've been holding on to that idea for a while because it works so well in In a Mirror Darkly that it was we, we get into the Tholian space, we get it into the parallel universe, and and again that episode right there takes a whole bunch of elements from the original series and plays with them. And In a Mirror Darkly, I'm, I don't know if you're aware of this, I'm sure you are, is quite often hailed as the best episode of Enterprise by fans. Oh, that's, that's very nice to hear. I know it was, it was so much fun to make. And, you know, I, I'm, I was g- glad ultimately that we, that the original take on that was uh, rejected because then we got future tense out of it. And then we got the, you know, the two part mirror universe show uh, all those years later. Uh, plus, in, in making it the mirror universe, we were able to have, you know, the evil doppelganger of, you know, Archer and everybody else explore those ships and live in the uniforms and learn everything they, they, they could. Whereas had we had there been a version of Future Tense where that was the defiance, I don't know how much of that we could have we could have realistically done without really upending the, you know, the premise of, of the series. Um uh, unless everybody took, you know, amnesia pills at, at the end of the episode. Uh, not, not sure how that would have worked. But, yeah, basically we ended up getting three episodes out of that, that one idea. Um, so it, it all worked out in the end. Now, on In Mare Darkly as well, you got your acting debut. How did you How did you channel your inner dead crewman? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's, it's harder than you think to, to uh, lie on the floor and not really breathing while, you know, Scott Bakula and a couple of stuntmen are, are walking around you. Um, no, that was, uh, I think Mary Howard, who was our line producer, uh, and who, who worked on all of the series. I remember at, a, at the production meeting asked me if I wanted to play a dead crewman and yes, was my immediate answer. And, 
and uh, I was, you know, lucky enough to, to, to get an actual red shirt. It was one of the red shirts that, uh, it, it was the red shirt, believe it or not, that David Gerald had worn uh, during his cameo in uh, More Tribbles, More Troubles on Deep Space Nine. They kept nice. all those uniforms and they simply changed out the, uh, you know, the insignia patches. They made a new defiant insignia patch for that episode. Uh, so, and his, David's name was, was, uh, you know, on, on the, on the, on the back of the, uh, of the uniform and the boots I'd given had been given, had also been used in that episode and they were, uh, Avery Brooks, they were Avery Brooks boots <laughs> from trials and tribulations. So I felt like I was walking in, in, in Star Trek history <laughs> in, in so many more ways than, than one. Although later on, I, I actually, believe it or not, I'm, I'm two dead crewmen in that episode. I am actually played two dead red shirts. Although. I cut uh, out the appearance where I was face up because the scene was just running too long. It was just too much, you know, too much footage of Scott and stuntmen wandering around the empty ship. And so um, I, I think you can see my butt in the current cut and that's it. So, so much, so much for my great cameo. Now, one of the interesting things about season four of Enterprise is we got a lot of multi-episode arcs. Three-episode arcs was, uh, we had, I think, about three of them in the season, which is an, an extremely interesting new way to tell stories in the Star Trek universe. Now, you wrote Kirshara, which was the third episode in an arc. So how is the process different from writing not the whole arc, but just a part of it. Do you work closely with the other two or were the other two episodes written and then handed to you and it's like, okay, now you got to finish it. Uh, it was kind of a, 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 I mean, the process all happened, you know, pretty much at once. Not that all, all the scripts were being written at once, but you know, like part two, for instance, I remember there was a character I remember I, ne I needed for Kirshara when, uh, you know, forgive me for like, can't really recall a lot of the names of the uh, Vulcan characters in, in that episode. Um, but I, I realized when I was breaking the story that we needed somebody to stand up to, I think his name was Vloss, the, the bad guy, yeah. uh, the leader of the high command, and that we would basically need a Vulcan character to stand up to him and, and take control. So I remember you know, going, I can't remember, to, I, I think it was probably went to, to Manny Cotto, who the showrunner for season four and, and, you know, very involved in the breaking of, of those particular stories. Um, and, and, and asking to, you know, can we get this character? Cause I think I really need it for part three for someone to sort of lead the, you know, the revolution. It wasn't like a big part, but it was, it was a necessary part. So that character ended up getting inserted in, uh, I think in episode two or, uh, or a prior episode in, in that arc. Uh, to, to set them up. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of push and pull uh, things that, you know, uh, you know, you know, if, if, if I, like I said, if, if I needed to set something up, if I needed something that I wanted to, you know, have paid off, it needed to be set up earlier. Often there were, there were things in earlier episodes that uh, I would now have to, you know, pay off, even though I didn't write the original setup. Um, but I mean, for me, that episode was, you know, so much fun to, to, to work on because I, I got to, you know, figure out what this, this whole three arc was kind of a big reset in many ways for, you know, the Vulcans and, and their relationship with earth. And so it was really great to be the one that kind of, you know, swoop in at the end there and tie up all of those ends that, 
you know, we'd, we'd, uh, you know, obviously there was a story of, you know, Surak and his Katra and, um, you know, and there was a resolution also to, you know, to Paul's uh, marriage and where uh, that was going. Um, and I had a little pet idea that I had, I had hoped to insert that I pitched uh, as being part of one of the earlier episodes in the arc that there was no time for. Everyone kind of liked my, my idea. And it was kind of a big idea was that it was ultimately the Romulans that were behind uh, this, this ruler. Uh, on Vulcan, who okay. was pushing his country, his country, his planet in a more militaristic direction. By the way, if this sounds at all close to anything that's going on in the world right now, you know, purely <laughs> coincidental. So I had I had hoped that we could set up the Romulans in an earlier way, and that we would establish some Romulan characters behind the scenes, you know, pulling the strings. We'd see that Bloss was his puppet, and that they were really involved. Uh, uh, in an effort, not, not necessarily. Uh, on the one hand, you know, Starfleet would see it as nefarious, but that they were really interested in Vulcan reunification with Romulus, which clearly is, you know, something that goes back to the next generation, or something that goes forward to the next generation, depending on your perspective. Uh, so I really wanted to set that up, but those stories were already so cram-packed with uh, character and plot and incident and really great stuff. There was just no time for it. And I got to the end of the writing process and I realized, oh, well, you know, maybe there's a way to just sort of drop that notion in and reveal at the end that the Romulans were perhaps behind this entire thing all along and then leave it as kind of a tantalizing mystery. Uh, and so I ended up, you know, writing that, that final scene. Because honestly, even without that, you take that final scene away, I, I didn't quite know. The episode kind of ended with a very happy bow on the end. Uh, it was just a little too neat and clean, uh, but there was something really wonderful about, you know, revealing this Romulan operative, revealing this character who we've already seen before, uh, who, you know, is now in full Romulan regalia and pulling strings. And what we had hoped to initially do, uh, Manny and I, I can't remember which one of us had pitched it, but what we wanted to be the last image of that Vulcan arc, the last image in Kirshara, was going to be a Romulan bird of prey, which we'd already seen on the series in season two. Yeah. We'd seen that wonderful uh, new design. And um, and the idea was that, that that ship would sort of swoop up in front of the camera and we would see, you know, painted on the hull, that familiar uh, bird of prey imagery, which had not been established uh, earlier on, on, on the show, the first time we saw those ships. So that was the original image uh, and, and that ship would, of course, have been you know, picking up uh, the, you know, the Romulan operative on the surface. Uh, it, ultimately, there was no time. There was no money. It was kind of a beside the point. But I, I, I felt like I got a little bit of a victory by having that final scene and reveal this, this tie-in to much deeper you know, Star Trek mythology and the Romulans and Vulcans and, and how that in establishing that the Romulans have been up to this reunification plot of theirs for a very, very long time. That was a lot of fun. My last question that I have for you before we go into the listener questions is about the episode Twilight. Now, we had recently covered Twilight in our Season 3 retrospective, and it generated some discussion online because... Now, I haven't listened to your commentary for the episode, but some of the listeners said they had. 
We weren't quite sure of the relationship that was implied with T'Pol and Archer. Now, this was a different timeline. This was prior to any solidifying of any relationship between Trip and T'Pol because that timeline hadn't quite happened yet. So we're wondering, what was your intentions for the relationship between Archer and T'Pol? Well, I, I think what... I mean, I think there's there's certainly room for speculation about what may or may not have happened off camera. But, I mean, certainly in the episode... What's, you know, more than hinted at pretty strongly is that in all of their years together on this planet where Archer's memory keeps getting wiped every time he falls asleep and each day is a new day. By the way, I want to point out 50 first dates came out after this episode. So <laughs> We named um, that episode when we talked about a week of 50 first dates. <laughs> <laughs> had, yeah, had, had that movie come out first and, I, and I'd seen it, uh, I probably would have uh, dismissed the, the concept of, of Twilight. But uh, so in, in my defense, that was after. But I think it's pretty clear that she fell in love with Archer uh, in, in a very subtle Vulcan-like uh, way, whereas for him, no time was passing and each day was, you know, as the day before. And that uh, she simply started to have feelings for him. And that's more or less in the episode where Phlox, I think there's a really great scene that Phlox and Paul had where she, where he kind of calls her on it because she decides that she's going to uh, accompany uh, Archer back to Earth or Vulcan. And, uh, and Phlox can, as he often can, can kind of see right through her and say, you have feelings for him, don't you? And she completely denies it as she, as she would. <laughs> uh, but I think what you're asking is, did Paul and Archer have a more physical or romantic relationship uh, prior to the start of the episode in that 12-year period? And I guess my answer to that would be, I don't think so. Um, it would it would seem a little odd for, I think, Paul of all people to, you know, perhaps take advantage of someone with a mental condition who <laughs> couldn't remember. Also, I think it would be totally out of character for Archer uh, since his mindset had not really changed from, you know, he was not really advancing the 12 years that she was. He was just, he was just reliving, you know, time over and over again. Uh, the, the, he would not have gone, gone there, but there, there is a lot of dialogue or an exchange between the two of them where she, uh, implies very strongly to Archer that their relationship has evolved, if I remember is a word that was used, evolved over the years. And he asks, oh, really, how far has it evolved? And she kind of gives him a look. <laughs> right, right, the right. original draft of the script, she actually gave him an answer. And her answer was, it hasn't evolved that far. <laughs> uh, and I remember we got a note from uh, Scott, Scott Bakula, saying, could we just lose that last line? Uh, it kind of makes Archer seem a little, little more cool if maybe, you know, he and Paul uh, have, uh, you know, gone where no man has gone before. So, uh, and I think he was absolutely right. The scene works better uh, without that line. Uh, and, but the, uh, the, I think the implications uh, there, uh, you know, kept, kept some people wondering. In my mind, nothing happened, but I think it was fun to suggest it also leaves it open for the fans, you know, because there's so many people who, who like to, you know, the, the term is shipping. They like to relationship people. And so it leaves it open for people. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, that was the season where we were kind of, you know, we were given the directive that Tripp and Paul were going to become a thing. And I had this episode where Paul fell in love with Archer and which, which fell a little, you know, out of step with that. 
in, in fact, in, in Twilight, what I thought was kind of interesting is that, you know, Paul and Trip really did not like each other. I think, you know, on some level, Trip may have like subconsciously blamed her for, you know, Archer being incapacitated and ultimately what happened to Earth. And they really hate each other, which I thought was, a, you know, a great counterpoint to, you know, where they uh, ended up as a couple. And they were great fun to write in, uh, you know, later on in, in season three and season four uh, when they were uh, together and not together and then together again. So a couple listener questions that we have. So this is from Justin Ozer, and he says, how was writing for Voyager a different experience than writing for Enterprise, and how were they similar? Well, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a real good question. I think with, uh, you know, Enterprise, I was there, you know, at the very beginning. I mean, you know, we when we got the script for the pilot, which, you know, I think Broken Bow, you know, still stands far and away as, you know, probably the, you know, the very best Star Trek pilot. Um, but at the time, nobody, you know, and I, I remember reading that script and I was just wrapping up uh, on Voyager and, uh, you know, being blown away by the writing and the concept and, and where it was going and that it was a prequel show and it was about a show called The Enterprise again, which is great. Um, and so, you know, to me, the the potential for that show to you know become like the, the sort of first prequel series in in you know in in the, in the Star Trek mythos was uh, very exciting and I was coming in at the ground floor whereas with Voyager even though I had sold some stories early on in season two um, I didn't really go on staff on the show until season seven and by that point there were a lot of new writers there and they had already explored, you know, so many different directions and arcs uh, for, you know, Captain Janeway and her crew, but now we had a brand new crew. And uh, although there were certainly, you know, a lot of ideas in, in place about, you know, who everybody was and uh, where we wanted to take those characters, it was, it was great fun to be there at the beginning. And, and, you know, having worked on other shows where you, where you're there at the beginning, or where you, you kind of come in later and have to get up to speed and, and, and figure out where these, you know, what, what has already been done with these characters? Where can we take them in, in, in a new direction that the audience hasn't already seen? It's much more fun, uh, I, I feel, as a, as a writer to come in at that ground floor and, uh, you know, and, and imagine who these people are, you know, from the beginning. You're discovering them along with the audience. And, uh, you know, launching them into, you know, brand new adventures that, uh, you know, that, that are new to their, their character that, uh, you know, a member of the audience can say, oh, well, you know, in episode 47 of season three, they already did something like this. You know, why is Hoshi scared, uh, you know, of aliens all over again? Uh, you know, and, and taking characters and, and, and sort of, you know, regressing them, making them, making them not less professional, but. It, just the, the concept of exploring was going to be brand new. It was that whole, you know, right stuff notion, the, you know, the first explorers out there in the galaxy and this, you know, one of the very first ships. That was very exciting and invigorating. And uh, I, I thought it was a, you know, a great way to, to you know, tell, tell Star Trek stories, but tell them with characters who have a, have a very fresh perspective that is, much closer to the audiences and show them, you know, have, have characters like Hoshi who are truly afraid of the dark and, uh, and, and uh, afraid of the unknown. 
and uh, you know, as, as inspiring as it was to you know someone like myself, as a viewer watching you know Captain Kirk, or Spock, or Captain Picard, have a very you know rational uh, you know view of the unknown, and you know, uh, and and be very calm and cool and collected about dealing with it. There was something a lot of fun about you know writing writing characters who had not yet. Uh, you know, develop that sort of veneer of, you know, professionalness uh, and where the unknown was, was still very scary to them. Listener Janet Lee asks, what are your thoughts on the diversity of the Vulcan personalities? And I think her intention behind the question is how the Vulcan personalities seem to be so different at the start of Enterprise versus how we saw them later on in the, in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not sure that they are, quite frankly. I mean, I, I thought it was it was absolutely the, the the right direction from you know Brandon and Rick to to have the Vulcans play an almost adversarial role. I think that I think for some people you know flew in the face of our great love for you know Spock and and what he did with that you know, character and with that whole race. But you know you look at an episode of say you know like a mock time where you know we go back to Vulcan and uh, you know we meet. Spock's, you know, wife, who is a very, you know, manipulative and <laughs> logically manipulative, uh, you know, woman. And uh, so, you know, I think the, the Vulcans are as diverse as, as human beings are. I think all too often, you know, on, on, on Star Trek, a, a particular, often, you know, simply for, you know, storytelling and budgetary reasons, one one character, one actor in prosthetics or makeup end up representing uh, an entire race. And it, certainly, you know, there, there's, there's so much more diversity to be to be had. I mean, no alien species in Star Trek universe, I think, has the diversity and appearance and attitude that, say, even, you know, humans do, because that we think that would be very you know, confusing to the audience. Um, or, or look, for instance, at the Klingons, who have, you know, many different uh, appearances and looks and philosophies, uh, you know, sometimes from television series to television series. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, I certainly, I don't have a, say an explanation for the Vulcans, uh, diverse opinions or, or, or diverse, uh, behaviors, uh, other than to say, look at human beings and there are good ones and there are not so good ones. And, uh, certainly uh, that's, that's, that's true of uh, the races in, in that universe. Listener Marsha Pratt said she really enjoyed reading Age of the Empress from the Star Trek The Mirror Universe saga. Uh, do you have any more story ideas that you'd like to write about? Uh, any more ideas regarding The uh, Mirror Universe? or I think she just left it as vague, so any Star Trek stories at all that you'd like to maybe write in a book form again. Oh, uh, you know, I actually kind of, I, I just wrote the story for that. And, uh, there were, there were two other writers and it was Dayton, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore who kind of came in and really did the lion's share of work in that. I, I think they had taken maybe a 10 page outline that I had written and, uh, you know, fleshed it out into, I don't know how many pages it was ultimately. I mean, it was really, I guess, just a novella. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't given it a ton of thoughts. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, it, it, it takes an incredible amount of 
time and energy uh, to write prose. Um, and I think one thing I learned in that experience uh, is, is that I'm a scriptwriter, not a not a novelist. Uh, it was great fun to work on. Uh, and uh, you know, if if for some reason Star Trek were ever to revisit that storyline and go back to the mirror universe and find out what happened to Empress Hoshi, um, I might have some thoughts, but uh, they they probably have to be in a in a teleplay form. I wonder if we'll get some uh, mirror universe in uh, Discovery or not. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath. I, I'm <laughs> feeling that uh, you know they're going their own direction as they should and. You know, it was great fun writing those episodes, but I, I think there is potentially something, you know, uh, you know, a little broad about the very concept of the mirror universe uh, that, uh, you know, again, this gets back to, you know, reinventing Star Trek for the, for, you know, the modern era. I, I think, I think something like, say, Yesterday's Enterprise, which showed a very dark, you know, Star Trek universe with Federations of War with the Klingons is probably a more grounded way to do something like that. But, uh, I, uh, but who knows? Maybe. So listener Ikaku Beeman would like to know, what piece of writing of yours are you most proud of, be it Star Trek or otherwise? Uh, wow. Uh, piece of writing I'm proud of. Um, you know, I try not to focus too much on, uh, you know, things I've done before. I just, you know, since it's what your audience is, is into and, um, uh, in terms of Star Trek writing I've done, I guess it would be, between uh, yeah, the Mirror Darkly episodes and um, Twilight. Uh, I remember when the script for Twilight came out and it was distributed to the actors. I remember uh, you know, the producers, uh, they got a phone call from Scott who, who uh, really, really liked the script. And you know, this was at a time when you know, the future of Star Trek, you know, in, in terms of the future films, was very much up in the air can't remember if Nemesis had come out yet, but I think the, you know, the hope uh, or, and plan had been that if Enterprise had run seven years and been a big success on the order of next gen, that perhaps someday they would do feature films. I don't think this is a, a speaking out of turn by, uh, you know, talking about this. Again, there were no contracts. There was nothing, you know, formalized, but I think that was sort of everybody's hope. But I remember, uh, yeah, Scott, called uh, the writer's offices and uh, I think called Rick and said, this is a very good idea. We should hang on to this for a potential movie someday, uh, which was, you know, really flattering to hear. Uh, unfortunately, we uh, needed a script to shoot that following week and <laughs> that was going to happen. Uh, but, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, it was something that had come together, you know, really, really nicely. And, you know, not every idea does or, or, or something that you have high hopes for ends up just kind of laying there on the page or not really, uh, not really uh, gelling when you, when you finally see a cut of it. But that was an episode that from the get go, I, I, I was just very passionate about. And I thought it was a great way to tell a Star Trek love story. And, and, it was very much in the tradition of, say, a city on the edge of forever, or uh, and all good things. Uh, you know, Star Trek had at this point done you know many of these sort of uh, you know reset type uh, episodes, but I thought it was still a, a unique enough idea that it fit in that um, in in that in that type of episode, uh, but was not uh, you know too derivative. 
uh, of anything except 51st dates, which again, I'm not going to I want to point out, but, um, but it, that was one that just came together, you know, really wonderfully. And it, and I think it worked. It had a lot of, you know, time travel shenanigans in it, but it worked ultimately because it really was a love story. And it was a story of unrequited love and how Paul had, had, uh, you know, developed feelings for Archer and, um, and, you know, imagining a scenario where that could happen seems, you know, really, <laughs> you know, almost impossible. But uh, that, that, so, and that was an episode that, you know, I got to destroy the Earth, the planet Earth, in the teaser of the episode. How often do you get to do that in Star Trek or any other television series? Right. Um, <laughs> so it, 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 it had a, you know, it, had, it was a very tragic backstory, clearly, and, uh, and but it was it was it was it was really a, a taste of you know what might have been for uh, for Paul and Archer, and it was uh, you know originally that was a story uh, that I pitched to Voyager as a Janeway and Chakotay story, okay, uh, not involving the destruction of the Earth, but uh, with them trapped on a planet, and uh, with I think it was Janeway who was going to have the have the condition. Um, but you know, again, by this point, there's been you know Memento and so many so many other ideas. It, it taken basically the same premise and turned it into comedy. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's a good thing we did the episode you know when we did in 2003 because I, I think it would be you know uh, uh, pretty uh, almost laughably uh, old and it's you know uh, had we waited a few years longer. Um, but at the time, and even still, that was that was uh, an episode that I thought really came together wonderfully on the page, and, and the cast and crew did a great job. So listener Tim Cooper wanted to know if there was any other ideas for the finale floating around, and then I'd like to add to that, you'd been working on Enterprise for four years, and Rick Berman and Brandon Braga came up with this idea of a swan song for the series. What was your reaction at the time, and has your reaction changed over the 15 years or so since it's aired because it's been I'll, I'll add to that because it's been derived as like most enterprise fans are extremely upset with these are the voyages and how it ended the the series because it's not considered a true enterprise episode because there's so much from the next generation in it right well i know that um i and brannon had pitched i i want to say one or two years before that episode the idea of doing an episode of of enterprise but basically doing it as an episode of Next Generation, using the holodeck to reflect back on Enterprise, which I thought was a brilliant, wonderful idea. I remember even at one point he suggested that it would be, we would actually, we, we would take a break for an episode. And again, this wasn't designed as the finale of Enterprise. This would just be like a, you know, a random episode during the run of the show. One week, the audience would tune in and the opening titles would be Star Trek The Next Generation. And we basically get a brand new episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that was focused on uh, Captain Archer and his crew. And at, the, at that point, we didn't know, you know who we could probably get. I, I think it was probably already you know, out of the, you know, no one actually believed we would get, uh, you know, Patrick Stewart to come back. So, but I, again, this was, you know, I, I believe Brandon's idea. Um, from the gecko, which I loved. And I thought that was a, a terrific episode. And, and I know he kept, it was a terrific premise for an episode. And I think it, you know, with the, with the arc of season three and saving the earth and uh, stopping the Zindi and then 
uh, Manny sort of stepping up with his own ideas for season four. There was never a place for that episode to sit. I think if we were to have done it earlier at all, it probably would have to have been, you know, maybe season two. Um, it's also the kind of episode that I think is hard to do early in the run of, of a series. And in clearly, even at the, the very end of the series, uh, there, there, was a, there was a big problem with it because it was ultimately an episode of, of Next Generation. I think that I, the idea of doing that was, was a terrific idea and, it, and would have been, a, you know, I think the episode would have been received much more positively had it just been an episode of, of you know, Next Generation tucked into the middle of Enterprise's run, not at the very end. Um, and so I think, you know, that element, which, by the way, again, I, great episode, great idea for an episode, not a great idea for the series finale, I, I, I think. That was just like a wrong time to do it. Um, but I don't think, uh, you know, that was recognized at, at the point. I think they, they simply saw, well, this is a cool idea. We've been kind of saving the idea. We really want to do it. We're out of we need, you know, we need a concept for the final episode. Let's do this really great idea we've been hanging on to. And I, and I think, you know, I think we may have just not stopped to think, wait a minute, is this, is this the proper way to, to send off Archer and his crew? And, um, you know, I think it was, you know, it was, I think it was pretty clear to, uh, you know, people who were working on the show, having, you know, read the script, really enjoyed it, thought, you know, it was a lot of, you know, tripped eyes in it, clearly, you know, very moving death scene and setting up the, you know, the retirement in the ship and the, and the founding of the Federation. There's a lot of great stuff in there. But I think it was probably just the wrong time to, you know, do a next gen episode. And so I understand why the, why the, the cast felt uh, slighted. Uh, it wasn't intentional uh, uh, by any means. Uh, so um, it was it was just unfortunate, I think, that uh, that the episode ended up uh, you know falling where it where it did in the lineup. Because I think in, the, in, in you know a different point in the show's run, it, it could have been a classic. Mm -hmm. Were there any other ideas that came around, or was the original premise to be uh, the Demons and Terra Prime two parter, and then they tucked this one on the end, or was there any other ideas for another final episode? Well, you know, it's funny because we were so, you know, as we all, you know, when you're trying to fill out however many episodes we were doing that, so I think we did 22 in season four. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of two and three part episodes and, and a couple of standalones. And I, th I think we, we had more ideas and more episodes, more ideas for episodes than we had actual episodes. Because I, I know, excuse me, I, I, the original notion was that uh, Demons in Terra Prime, but it was actually going to be a three parter. And I think oh, okay. it could have, uh, and there's certainly enough story there uh, to 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 get it to three parts. Uh, and we had to we had to wrap it up. We had to wrap it up in a in in, in two uh, because Rick and Brandon had expressed that you know they had their their idea for the finale. So, um, which uh, you know they wrote on their own, and everyone just you know sort of read later. Um, so you know, it would have been nice to to have been able to to do that arc in 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 over three episodes. I, I think you know the end of uh, Terra Prime could have served as an end to the series. I mean, Archer gives a really nice speech. Um, uh, 
you know, I, 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 to my knowledge, there were no other ideas sort of seriously being, you know, kicked around. We didn't find out until it was January, late January of 2005 that we were not coming back. So there wasn't a whole lot of time when I mean, we were in production on, on the mirror universe shows, I think part one. Um, no, actually I think we take it back. It was part two. So there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of time to, I mean, it was always in the air that it, this might be it, but, uh, and I, I think there has been a little bit of, uh, you know, revisionist history in that, uh, I was, I was shocked and surprised that that we were being canceled and as i recall you know everybody else was as well it may not have been the shock to uh, you know our dwindling viewers um but i i think when you work when you work as as hard as any you know crew production crew does uh, on on a television show you you set yourself up for the you know uh for the job and and the belief that it will, you know, continue, uh, because how else could you get up in the morning and, you know, work for, you know, 10 or 12 hours. If it was all like going to be futile. I mean, every television show was canceled ultimately. So, um, but no, I, I think we were felt we were really firing on all cylinders in that season and we really had found our footing and it's, you know, I, I think not a stretch to say that some of the other series, some of the, the sequel series also took a couple of years to, to find that footing. And we thought, like, great, we found ours. And then we were canceled. And, uh, you know, again, television is a, is, is a tough business. Um, but, uh, you know, after having, you know, so many consecutive years of uh, Star Trek on the air, uh, I think we were all, you know, uh, in a little bit of disbelief that it was going to go away. Um, and of course it, it did and it's coming back now and you can't ever really truly kill Star Trek um, but uh, yeah there were no other ideas that were really being kicked around that, that I was privy to anyway we were just so busy trying to trying to make the the, the, the 22 we we did get to uh, we did get to make in that final season well thank you so very very much for joining us tonight I really appreciate it it's been it's been awesome listening to your stories about working on Enterprise and I mean it, it was canceled early, but I mean, we're, I think it's coming back and it, it, well, I don't think it is. There's a lot of appreciation that's been developing for enterprise over the last few years and it's really starting to get the fandom that it deserves. So uh, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight. It's my pleasure, Brandon. What are some projects that you're working on right now that our, our listeners can be looking out for and how can our listeners follow you on social media? Oh, well, I just wrapped up work on a, a TNT show called The Last uh, Ship from uh, executive producer Michael Bay. I think that's airing this August on TNT. So uh, check that out. Uh, on social media, I'm on Twitter. I think it's, uh, I think my name is underscore Michael Sussman. So uh, I don't, I don't tweet a whole lot, but uh, every now and then I, I, I do. And it's usually about Star Trek still, all these years later. <laughs> It has that hold on people. It really does. Well, speaking with Mike Sussman about his work on Enterprise is not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network, so take a quick listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, to the journey! So his, his whittling skills are so advanced that he can whittle wood into leather. Into vegan leather, yes. He is now Rumpelstiltskin. He is the Rumpelstiltskin of the Marquis. Warp 5. 
You think they start to like like each other, and then it's more like a father daughter kind of relationship, and then he basically becomes fifty uh, first dates, and she falls in love with him. <laughs> so <That's> great. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. The six oh two club. Yeah, I mean Christopher Lee. That that's inspired. To have him in that role. It, it really is such a good bit of casting to have him there. Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. The key thing with your trellies, all of these elements are exactly the same thing as the events in real life. You know, the Metron Cascade is the bomb. Rhinax is Nagasaki or Hiroshima. You know, the poisoning is analogous to radiation poisoning and all these different things. And the, the parallels are enormously overt with your trail straight away. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on your iPhone, your iPad, Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And while you're there, please leave us a star rating and a written review. We think we've been doing a great job on Warp 5, and if you do as well, leaving that review will help us out absolutely more than you could possibly know. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file or grab the RSS link from our website. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show or any of our other shows, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger discussion is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and join in on all the fun. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And if you'd like to send us a voice transmission, the comm officer has the frequency open. Just go to SpeakPipe.com slash TrekFM, record your message, and I will add it to a future episode. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at Trek.FM slash contact. Choose Send to a Show and select Warp 5, and it will come right to Floyd and myself. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And it's all available through our special patrons website called Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. And we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Also, if you want to wear your Trek FM fandom, you can get great Trek FM theme merchandise at the Trek FM store. Thank you always to our co-associate producers, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, and Justin Ozer. We greatly appreciate your help in supporting our show and supporting the network at large. Well, if you want to get in touch with Floyd, I guess the best way is probably on the Babel Conference. He's going to be away for the next episode as well, but he'll be back after that. Uh, Next week, we've got some fun, so if you want to do some homework, you can watch Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven and the episode Marauders. Uh, Brandon Coles and Mike Schindler will be joining me to discuss those, those three films and episodes, so I hope you'll have fun with that next time. 
And uh, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. And you can find me on my other show here on the network, which is called Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my buddies Chris and Tom, where we have a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And that's a lot of fun, so check us out. That's also on Twitter, at Good Evening Pod. So, Boomers, thank you for listening, and join us again next time for another episode of Warp 5. Warp 5.